Welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia podcast, the podcast where we look at legal and technical issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. This podcast is the second of our three-part series presented by Kiri Parr and Sean Brady. Kiri offers her perspective on the compelling story of how an unreliable IT system led to innocent people going to jail. Okay, so we're going to talk about part two of the great post office scandal, Kiri. Part one. You introduced the scandal, the story. You told us about a few of the people who have been affected by this, and you talked about how the whole thing began to unravel. And today, we're going to talk about the software. We're going to talk about the Horizon software and how it led to the outcome that it did. So if you remember in episode one, we started with that very large billion-pound PFI project led by the post office to digitise the UK postal system. And uh, you may recall, contract was awarded to Fujitsu in May 1996. And they won the job to digitise the post office. And they won the job despite being the lowest ranked tenderer because they offered to bear all of the software development costs in exchange for eight-year guaranteed transaction fee every time the Department of Social Services swipe cards as used by their beneficiaries were swiped in a post office in the UK. And the key thing here, isn't it, that the sooner they got that system out there, the sooner they were making money on these transactions and they only had eight years to make their money back. So it took, if it took them six years to do it, they've only got two years of revenue coming in. Yes. Now, the wheels started falling off pretty fast, though, for Fujitsu um, because they seriously underestimated the complexity of automating 20,000 geographically isolated and disparate post offices. And just go back to, for, just for a second to the, the tender. In the last episode, you said that not only were they cheapest, but they they failed on categories in the tender. Or they, were, they were the, the lowest ranked, ranked on eight yeah. out of the 11 categories. So this was not the strongest tenderer by any means. These were the, but this was the tenderer who went, dear government, you don't have to pay for your digital transformation I'll bear those costs, but the commercial arrangement means that I will be able to recoup these over the length of the PFI deal. And was that public? So if you were one of the victims, you you knew this was the grounds on which this thing was... I believe so. Fujitsu needed 40,000 terminals. They'd need to train 67,000 people. They needed to write software that could handle about £65 billion in benefit transactions uh, across 28 million annual customers. So this was... Um, as I said in the first episode, the largest non-military IT piece of software uh, in the world at that point in time. The hardware was the easy part. It was the software that was the complex. And just one year in, by about mid-1997, Fujitsu, the Department of Social Services and the post post office are at loggerheads. Um, Fujitsu were burning through £10 million a month (laughs) as they would writing the software. So they had a big team set up to get this going. And the post office and the DSS were a really difficult client. And I think this is something we're learning about IT. The process by which you develop software is not like 
other kinds of projects. It's a much more iterative process. And you'll like this part, Sean. Frustrated at the lack of progress, the post office and the Department of Social Services issue a breach notice to Fujitsu. Yes. This is like one year in. That and we're, helps. We're issuing breach notices. These are two large commercial organisations. They know how to play this game. Fujitsu refuses to accept the notice and threatens to stop work unless it's guaranteed a price hike on its transaction fee. <laughs> the DSS says, well, I don't think I want swipe cards anymore. I think I'd rather have our claimants just have direct bank deposits instead of the swipe cards. Wow. So the whole, the, the driver or one of the drivers was, everyone gets a swipe card, we cut down on the fraud, now we don't need the swipe cards. Yeah. So you picked up one of those elements there, right? Okay. So the, for Fujitsu, the entire financial model of its PFI bid completely fallen over by this. So well, it, I want to remember that. Why, why so the, it was going to earn money because the, trans- the, the transaction fees. <laughs> so the swipe cards aren't being used. <laughs> so it's a snow transaction. There's no transaction fees. Their revenue model disappeared up in smoke. So hang on. So Fujitsu threatened to walk off the job and, and in retaliation, essentially, <laughs> or it looks like retaliation, they say, well, we'll, we'll just minimise your transaction fees that you're actually going to minimise. We're going to minimize We're gonna get rid- there, there is no revenue stream for you anymore. And for the post office... That also means that a third of its customer base walks out of the post office. Who walks into a post office? The person with the card to go in and swipe their so transactions. All the so all incidental other stuff. The project's going badly. It collapses. The Department of Social Services effectively blows up yep. the financial structure of this deal. On both the post office. On and both the post, post office up. and Fujitsu. This project, though, is too big to fail, though. So it keeps on limping through and effectively you get a couple of years where the project gets rearranged, which is what happens in most of our mega projects. They get rebuilt some, in some ways. To, to be clear, th- at this point, Fujitsu is bearing all their own costs, aren't they? So they haven't made a cent. It's not like the post office is actually paying them anything because they're bearing all the costs of developing this yeah. thing. So they're making no money. The post office is spending no money. Um, so there's a renegotiation that happens in 1999 and that PFI contract is converted into a fixed payment fee and the post office takes over all the risk of the project. So Fujitsu moved to a model where they're being paid for all their work and all the risk of the software moves to the post office. So they're not going to get transaction fees anymore? They're not going to get mean, transaction that wasn't fees. Good anyway, but yeah. So you basically, here's a monthly fee to develop some software for yep. us. Yep. Now, the post office does the right thing. It does a risk assessment of the software when they take it over from Fujitsu. So hang on. So that's what you mean by the post office take the risk of the software. When Fujitsu were making their money on the transactions, it was their job to make sure that was that doing it what it said on the tin or else they'd run into yep. significant problems. They'd be the ones defrauding people, essentially. Isn't that yep. the risk the post, there? So the whole responsibility for the software is moving from Fujitsu to the post office. And post office are just hiring Fujitsu now to deliver the software. Now, Fujitsu are a little bit cagey and the audit of the software before the post office buy it is that due to inadequate visibility and support from Fujitsu, the auditors were not able to gain a high level of assurance in the adequacy of the services. The post office knows that they don't know what's going on with the software when they have to take it over. But there's so much, this project's too big to fail. And that auditor presumably was was brought in by the post office. It's not coming from some other part of government or anything like that. It's, it's let's make sure what we're buying is right. Yes. Um, the post office is the government. The share, main shareholder of the post office in the UK is the government. So um, 
think of it, it's, it's, it's hard to not think of the post office as, as an adjunct of the government, although it's a, it's, it is a statutory, it's a separate organisation with shareholdings, but that shareholding is owned by the government. There is a little bit of insight into what's going on on the Fujitsu side because there's a, uh, a programmer called Clint from the time who spoke to one of the journalists. You get this little, these little nuggets of insight into what was going on in, inside the Horizon team. And they're rare because these people have really only spoken on the side to journalists along the way. This story's not fully out there yet. And uh, Clint was a manager brought in to fix Horizon in April 1998. And uh, he spoke to a journalist about what was going on inside Fujitsu at the time. And he described a team of incompetent software developers with poor management and a system that had been built off the prototype. So in layman's terms, what he says is like a software prototype is like the architect's cardboard mock-up and you don't start putting your roof tiles on top of the cardboard mock-up. But that's what was happening inside the software. So they'd built, for the bid, they'd built a prototype to prove the concept of what their software was, but rather than build it properly, they just started building off that prototype. Yeah. Not only did the post office buy the software in 1999, halfway through 1999. So they knew it wasn't, they had issues with the software because their own assurance team goes, we don't know what's going on, but they bought it. And then they announced that they were going live in October, 1999, ready or not. So for the post office, I'm taking over the risk of the software and we are going to launch. And two months before launch, look, they, do, they are auditing. They're going, what are the most severe problems going on here? One of the six high severity problems identified with the software was that the transaction information progressing derived cash account, the tip derived cash account, wouldn't equal the electronic cash account received by tip. So before they so went live. So what does that mean, please? <laughs> they knew that the accounts didn't balance. They've got lots of warnings about their system. They know that they've got software issues. They go live in late 1999. So the next thing I want you to take you into is the commercial principles of the sub-postmaster's deal with the post office, because this is an important part. Okay. So this is the relationship between the post office and as the the empire. Yes. And uh, your mum and dad. The mum and dad's. Running the local little post office and news agency in a little country town. So if you're going to um, run the local post office business, you don't get hired as an employee of the post office. You effectively buy what's a franchise agreement with the post office. It's called the sub-postmaster's agreement. It was taken by the post office as a position of great responsibility. The post office was cautious about who it granted these rights to, and they very much reserved rights to take a post office back. So if they were worried, they absolutely had contractual rights to go, I'm taking my post office back off off you. And we're protecting, you know, it's financial transactions. It's potentially a high fraud environment. That is one of their driving principles. There's one clause in particular in the sub-postmaster's agreement, and it ends up being critical to the story, and it's clause 12. And it provides, the sub-postmaster is responsible for all losses caused through his own negligence, carelessness, or error, and also for all kinds caused by his assistance, deficiencies must be made good without delay. So if you, the postmaster, are negligent, if you're careless or errors, if something goes wrong at your tilt, that's on you. 
And if you cause an error uh, and there's a discrepancy, you have to make it good. So that's what the post office took it to mean. If there's a negative discrepancy in the accounts, you as the sub-postmaster would be expected to make good, which is you have to find that difference and, and, and reimburse it. And for negligence, you know, you're responsible for operating your till. You can see where they're coming from. And it does reverse the onus of proof and it put the burden on the sub-postmasters to prove that if there were discrepancies, it wasn't due to their uh, negligence, their carelessness or error. It, it also does, as well, does, creates the situation where the only source of, uh, I mean, sure, they've got the word negligence in there, but it suggests as well that the only source of that this could happen is, is if you do it. Yeah. And this agreement was written back in the days when everything was paper, so you, the sub-postmasters had access to all of their accounts. They had full transparency. You yeah, could work so it they out. could actually, they could meet those duties and avoid being negligent. Yeah. So once you move to the software system, the balance of power changes. So you have this responsibility, but you no longer have the control, visibility or ability to interrogate the Horizon IT software. And you don't have the evidence. And you carry the risk of it being wrong. Now, you remember Alan Bates yep. from episode one. So Alan Bates was the postmaster of Craigie Don and he had uh, he was finding discrepancies in his accounts in 2000 and he lost his post office. Now, Alan Bates had run businesses beforehand and he did what all good business owners would do when the discrepancies started emerging. He interrogated the system. So what he found with his Horizon terminals that he couldn't, he worked out that after months and months, not only could he not interrogate its system, he worked out that the post office didn't even understand its own system and what it could do because nobody could see what was going on. No one could get to the discrepancies and it was clause 12 that that was used to go, well, you can't explain the discrepancy. It must be, well, you haven't been able to prove that it's the horizon system. It can yep. only be your actions and um, he lost his post office. And again, he chose not to fight the post office um, and on that story went. So the system is designed so that the postmasters have no rights or ability to interrogate the transactions. So you, if you were running a piece of IT software, you'd want the admin rights that allows you to get into the back end yep. to work out what's going on. Yep. You want your transparency. You, you can't. You couldn't find that information out. And to make matters worse... The data at the terminals. So if you're running your post office and you've got your horizon terminals, the data there was only kept for 42 days. So if the discrepancy went back for 42 days, you had no evidence to prove your innocence. That's it. At all. Yeah. You couldn't do any analysis. And, and you know, lots of the stories talk about the postmasters at their horizon terminals getting these, you know, two-inch wide pieces of strips of paper explaining the transaction. So if you're trying to look at the information available to you at your horizon terminal and you're wanting to take a hard copy, you're basically looking at these tiny little strips of paper. paper coming out, like Can you imagine receipt. trying to reconcile it? Just about impossible. The other thing you like, because we talk about language a lot, don't we, Sean, yeah, the we importance do. of yeah. language. So when a sub-postmaster raised an issue with the Horizon system, so they had a process that you could go, I saw this thing. And initially, when you raised an issue, it was called an error notice. Over time, that error notice was later called a transaction correction but it changed one more time. They ultimately called them transaction acknowledgements. So slice by slice, the very concept that the Horizon IT system could be flawed was being washed out of the post office. 
I've got three bugs that I'm going to tell you about how the Horizon system was actually causing all these problems. The first one was the reversal bug, and it was found in around 2003. So with this bug is that if you went to reverse a transaction out of the system, Horizon would tell you that it had reversed the transaction, but would in fact double it because in the code, somebody had used a plus sign instead of a minus sign. But it was found in 2003. Remember, for Tracy was prosecuted back in 2001. It could have been one of the bugs that had been operating and calling discrepancies. So you can imagine, you've got 20,000 post offices out there. People are finding little discrepancies all the time and you make it good because you can't prove that you don't. So yeah. how much money has been tipped into the post office over the years because of these discrepancies that no one could explain and you end up taking responsibility for them? As a um, So another bug was the calendar bug. I like how they get all these different names. So this bug was buried in the underlying repost message store. Yes. Oh, we all know what that is, yeah. <laughs> So it's a third-party piece of software that you use to contain fundamental operating instructions and it should operate as an agreed data dictionary. So it basically says the rules about how data moves in and out. And that dictionary is really important because it allows the machine to consistently read messages inside and out. Now, you remember how at the beginning I said this piece of software was built on the prototype? Yeah. Their repost data or dictionary was just messy. Because it was a prototype. It was a prototype and it was built on a prototype and it wasn't, it had all sorts of things, testing stuff that was used. So it was full of old, redundant and inconsistent instructions. So whenever one of those tens of thousands of transactions that happened every day inside the post office got caught in a repost bug, you'd have a transaction discrepancy, but you couldn't find it. They're almost impossible to find. And the only way you could work out what was going on was for somebody to manually go behind the system and try and work out what error in the repost dictionary was causing that inconsistency. There are 30 to 40 people at Fujitsu working full time trying to catch, spot and correct bugs on the fly. And for some local post offices, their errors would be corrected because suddenly you'd have, you know, when people say, don't worry about it, it'll be, it'll be caught and corrected, it's because somebody in the back end of Fujitsu is fixing these things up and yep. everything would be balanced back. So there's another bug, um, which is the payments and mismatch bug. So this one's, this one's a little bit tricky. So if you're at a, if a branch holds 10 traveler's checks valued at $100, in Horizon you'd have a stock report that say I've got 10 traveler's checks worth $100 each with a total stock value of $1,000. So if a customer comes in and buys a traveler check, a traveler's check worth a hundred dollars, so you're reducing the number of t- traveler's checks in stock from ten to nine. There were some coding errors, and which led to the Horizon stock report showing something like minus ninety times one thousand traveler's checks. Minus ninety. Times <laughs> yeah, it, it was the equivalent of like a nine thousand pound error because somebody came in and bought a one hundred pound. Traveler's checks, but that was only in the stock report. It wasn't in the transaction report. So it, people using the system. So the transaction report presumably would say someone just sold one traveler's yeah. check for a hundred bucks. Yeah, well, and then you've pounds. got a stock report over here that says th- nine, there's a minus nine thousand dollar movement, and but they wouldn't balance up, and it wasn't visible to the people using the terminal because they don't see the stock report, and. 
you know, it's a bit special because it only actually happened when customers were using debit cards. So it doesn't happen every time. And this error was so significant that there's actually an internal memo written by the post office around 2010 that a branch encountering the receipts and payments mismatch bug problems will have corrupted accounts. And it said that the branch wouldn't get a prompt from the system to say there is a match mismatch, and therefore the branch will believe that they have balanced correctly. Do you want to know who the author of that memo was? <laughs> the guy who came and testified that the system yeah, was fine. Mr. Jenkins. So you know how Alan Bates, who was our first uh, one of our first subpostmasters, who, who lost yep. his piece, uh, set up yeah the action group. Um, it turned out that an auditor from 2001 had found a bug in his terminal that was intermittently adding the previous day's cash holdings to the daily declaration. When do you think that audit report might have been disclosed by the post office? Uh, it's got to be really late. In it? the class action in 2020. No wonder the post office didn't want to release the documents. All right, so the other plank that was absolutely central to the post office case was they held a very, it was a really long held position that the horizon system could not be remotely accessed. So the post office basically said the horizon system uh, exists and we, the post office, cannot go behind the scenes and change anything without you, the sub postmaster, knowing about it. So it couldn't be remotely accessed. It wasn't even a possibility. Um, and this. So uh, Fujitsu had to do everything. Fun to, is that right? No, not even that. Fujitsu couldn't even do remote access. So for a long time they also said, couldn't get into your terminal. Yeah, okay, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So, so now where the information's kept, but your yeah. particular terminal. So we can rely on it because there's no chance that someone in the back end is doing something that you're not aware of. So that just points again to this this view of the integrity of your terminal is not in question. Absolutely. It's you. So Paula Venels said at the Parliamentary Select Committee that it was not possible for branch records to be altered without the sub-postmaster's knowledge as late as 2020. And in saying that, she relied on a conversation she had with the CEO of Fujitsu, who told her that the system was like Fort Knox. The issue that remote access was not possible had been central to just about everything the post office said for 20 years. Yep. And the logic goes like this. If there's an error in Horizon, there would never be the basis for a sub-postmaster to be responsible for it under Clause 12 of that sub-postmaster's agreement. If there was an error in the Horizon system, that wouldn't be the sub-postmaster's responsibility because it's not the sub-postmaster's negligence or action that led to it. Yeah. So if a Horizon did report a discrepancy at a terminal, because Horizon is reliable and it cannot be tampered with remotely, then the only reasonable inference is that the discrepancy exists because of something that was the sub-postmaster's responsibility. They did something to their own terminal. The discrepancy can only exist because of something the postmaster did. Yep. So Horizon's not only reliable, but it can't be accessed. So, so we can't, can't get in there and with tamper with it. So anything yeah. that you see in there is the postmaster yeah. who's And doing they it. were holding that position all the way through the class action trial into 2019. Remember I told you in episode one that it did not end well for the post office.
in the class action for the sub-postmasters, they call Richard Rolls. And between 2001 and 2004, Richard is a third-level horizon support manager at the Fujitsu Software Service Centre. And he agreed to give evidence at the time. Now, Richard does not prove to be a very good witness at the beginning. He was attacked about how senior he was, what his decision-making power was, you know, you're not really very important. You didn't know what was going on. You can't recall particular conversations. So hang on, who's doing the attacking here? The, uh, post, the offices, post office. The post office is attacking Richard Roll. Yeah, so they're trying to discredit Absolutely. Him. And he's about a day in. He's looking pretty dreadful on the stand and everyone's very worried. And um, on the second day of his evidence, the barrister for the post office asked him to explain how how could a Fujitsu software engineer go into a sub-postmaster's branch terminal and change transaction data without that sub-postmaster's knowledge? Now, at this point in time, you've just turned on Richard into his technical speciality, right? Yeah. You're not asking him what he remembers. He's not talking about his responsibilities. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, you're asking him, how did, the, how did you do this? sweet spot and he's happy, yeah. And he explains line by line exactly how it is done. In his technical element, he single-handedly undermines the core plank of the post office's position for almost 20 years. He establishes that not only was it possible to remotely access a branch terminal and change transaction data, but that it could be done and was done without any record of it ever happening. In the detail, there's a technical story where he goes, well, you take the code and you take out this bit of the code here and this bit of the code and you roll that in and then you roll it back out again and it's, he basically said, this is how it's done. <laughs> Justice Fraser, in his response to the post office's defence of Horizon as being fundamentally robust and reliable, he described that as the 21st century equivalent to the contention that the earth is flat. <laughs> I like Justice Fraser. Harsh, yes. So before I close this episode on the Horizon system, I want to take a quick sidetrack into Chinook helicopters. Yes, because they're, you know, they're always relevant. relevant. Yes. All right. So in 1994, a Chinook MK2 carrying 25 passengers and four crew, including two experienced pilots, took off from RAF Aldergrove in the UK. It crashed and killed everybody on board. The RAF and Air Accidents Investigation Branch concluded, in the absence of any evidence of technical malfunction, that the pilots were at fault and were found posthumously guilty of gross negligence. No. The two fathers went on a campaign to clear their sons' names. The pilot's fathers? Yep. The campaign turned a corner following a 140-page report written by Computer Weekly. One of the lead investigators was a journalist called Tony Collins. And he set out how the FADIC software that controlled the navigation system had serious problems and that crucial information about these issues had been withheld from the investigators into the crash. The RAF did not disclose issues they knew with the software. And it was an MP in East Hampshire where the parents resided who led the push for an inquiry into the disaster. And in 2011, the findings of gross negligence were set aside. So that's almost 10 years to clear the Chinook pilots from findings of gross negligence. And that story absolutely is about two core people learning that 
software can go wrong and it can be not known to those people. Yeah, wow. And my point about sharing the story is that unless you actually understand that these things can happen, the vast majority of us presume that IT systems are correct and accurate. This bias compromises legal process all the time, this bias that we assume that software is correct. At the time the story starts, we've got a decision in uh, DPP v Cowan in 1997 by a Lord Hoffman, who says that it is notorious that one needs no expertise in electronics to be able to know whether a computer is working properly. And in 1997, um, the UK Law Commission was considering how they understood evidence uh, and computer system evidence, and they argued that most computer error is either immediately detectable or results from error in the data entered into the machine. This kind of misconception is one of the things that's at the root of why our legal system keeps on getting cases that involve IT wrong. Yeah. So you've got to prove that the IT doesn't work, but you're fighting against the bias yeah. that computer yeah. must be right. I want to do the link to the Chinook story. Tony Collins was the editor of Computer Weekly when he sent out that young journalist to investigate the Horizon story. <gasps> And James Arbuthnot went on to become Lord Arbuthnot and became the most vocal MP in the UK Parliament standing up for the sub-postmasters. So the Chinook story gave two critical people insight into the process that allowed them to argue it and, and to bring it That's forward. That's incredible. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about in part three? How the lawyers got it wrong. Thank you very much, Kerry. <laughs> 